Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would join me in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Well, sort of, kind of, where we're going to start. So, this summer, we've been doing a series on what does the Bible say about where uh, you've been able to ask different questions, uh, and we're, we're nearing the end of those questions, and uh, some questions are, are best suited to a conversation rather than to a message, uh, but I don't want to change the rules halfway through the game, so uh, I am going to try to cover some things this morning. Uh, that's a little bit different, a little bit off of topic of a typical Sunday morning. So if you're, if you're visiting with us today or maybe freshly back, uh, I just want to say it's not always like it's going to be today. Uh, but, it's, but it's true. I'm not backing up from the truth. It's just a little different than, than, a, than a typical message. I also want to say that while we're nearing the end of the series, starting next week, we're going to be dealing with some very special topics uh, of course, many of you know over the summer we like for our, our, our younger kids to worship with us and, and, uh, and to, to be in worship with moms and dads and, uh, and our families. And, uh, and so, uh, no offense to any of our kids, but I'm kind of waiting on some of the questions for our kids to go back to class, uh, if, you know, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, just, uh, boy, is that, is that a teaser for next week or what, right? <laughs> So today, uh, I am going to ask, I, I, re- I recognize that the message itself may not fit the same paradigm for all of us, or at least the way that we like to, to learn and to hear, but there's going to be a whole lot more teaching today uh, than, than preaching. Of course, I'm, I'm kind of a heavy teacher anyway, uh, and, and I don't back away from that, but today is even more so. So I hope that you will give me patience and a whole lot of grace as we cover uh, this this particular issues, I should say, because there's more than one. Uh, I also want to start by saying we call this kind of preaching apologetic preaching. And apologetic doesn't mean that we're saying we're sorry. That's how we use the word apology uh, in, in, our, in our English. Uh, but the idea of having an, an apologetic means to be ready to give a defense for. And an apologetic preaching isn't necessarily the point of a Sunday morning preaching. Nevertheless, sometimes it's, it's necessary to be able to give an apologetic, which means to be able to put a reason or an answer in our hands to combat another narrative that the world is telling. So again, today's a little different, but I think that there's a significant amount of benefit. What I've also been able to do or tried to do is to find the questions that people are asking, and, and no offense to the question askers, but to be able to find the, the more specific reason why the question is being asked and answer it, answer it from that. So that's what I'm going to be doing today in regard. And when I say it, you're going to say, oh, great. Uh, I'm, oh, my stomach's growling. I think I'm going to go ahead and go. Uh, but don't. You need, to be, you, need to, you need to be patient, okay? Uh, but what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? <laughs> I told you you would. But honestly, it is, it is a terrific, terrific question. All right? I'm going to assume that the asker was serious. <laughs> all right? So I'm going to answer it seriously. 
this morning because it really, truly is a, a great, great question. So whether you grew up with The Land Before Time uh, or Jurassic Park or Jurassic World, uh, we have become fascinated with dinosaurs ever since the late 1600s because that's when we first found uh, some of the, uh, the earliest fossils were discovered. So when it comes to understanding prehistoric issues and prehistoric creatures uh, and the Bible, it's easy for these questions to, uh, to really dislodge and, and the, the questions take our attention off of the point. And I'm afraid sometimes this does that but with the right answers, it, it, will, it will point us back to Christ, which is what I hope to do today. For instance, can you be a Christian and believe that dinosaurs existed? And when did dinosaurs go extinct and why did they go extinct? And how do dinosaurs fit within the narrative of Genesis chapter 1? These are, these are really good questions. And probably the most important one, uh, because of the implications of it, is did humans and dinosaurs walk the earth at the same time? And so we're going to answer all of those this morning, and I think very clearly answer them, not some, you know, theoretical uh, answer, but another one. So a lot of people would say, well, I don't know if dinosaurs really existed or not. I mean, there's very few of those anymore, but... uh, did dinosaurs really exist? The dinosaurs aren't found in the Bible. So sometimes if you're hard, fast, you know, Bible scholar, you may tell your kids, well, science says dinosaurs existed, but the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs. And that's very true. The Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, the very word, means terrible lizard. It was coined 200 years ago, 200 years after the King James Version was translated. It would make sense that a word that didn't exist during the translation wouldn't find itself in there. So the word is not in Scripture, but for those of you who get alarmed by that, neither is a kangaroo or a giraffe, and I've seen one with my own eyes. I know they exist. So there's a lot of things that exist that's not in Scripture. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on that. So whether or not the word dinosaur is found in Scripture isn't, doesn't determine whether or not that it is, is true. However, there is a Hebrew word, and that word is tanin, and it is translated every time in the Old Testament. And in the Greek uh, uh, correlation to that word in the New Testament, it is always translated as dragon. All right, believe it or not, the word dragon is found 21 times in the Old Testament, and it is found 12 times in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is about 75% of the book of Revelation found in the Old Testament. So it would make sense that that exists. In fact, Psalm 18, verse 8 says, Smoke rose from its nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. I mean, that sounds like something right out of The Hobbit, right? And so, you know, you wonder where we get ideas from. That actually, you know, Tolkien gets these ideas from Scripture. These things actually existed at some point. How did they exist? What did they look like? We have very little evidence of them. But Scripture itself speaks to them and how they functioned, which tells me that man and dinosaur did cohabitate uh, the earth. Now, there are two particular passages. Again, there's 21 times the Bible uses in, he, in Hebrew the word uh, dragon uh, and multiple, mul- multiple uh, uh, descriptions and declarations about what that might would look like. Uh, it seems to be more than just a animal or an animal. It seems to represent, dragon seems to represent a type of 
animal. Okay, so I'm just going to leave that there, and I'm not going to go any further with that. But there are a couple of passages of Scripture that I now want you to turn to. So I said Genesis earlier. I'm going to go back to Genesis, but Job chapter 40 is where we're going to start reading this morning. Job chapter 40. I'm going to go ahead and get started, and you can catch up. We're going to start in verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Like an ox, not an ox. Right? Like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first. That word first in Hebrew doesn't mean in order. It means in magnificence or in structure. So he's saying that this is the largest of its kind. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him, that's God, bring him near his sword. Meaning that, listen, anybody else that has a sword that wants to come after this thing, good luck to you. We'll pray for you from here. Okay. For the mountains yield food for him where all of the wild beasts play. So we find that the, the, the wild beasts are at play where this thing is roaming for food. So he's not consuming wild beasts. Wild beasts are safe at play while he is consuming. He's not a carnivore. He is a herbivore, but he's a monster. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He's confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Some people would say, well, he's just talking about a hippopotamus. After all, hippopotamuses are huge. Uh, in fact, some of the largest ones are about eight thousand pounds. That's a really big hippo, right? Uh, hippopotamus in Greek actually means river horse. So these are horses of the river, right? And I've seen some hippopotamus and they are incredibly, you know, they're the most dangerous animal on the face of the earth. But I've, and I, all of the ones I've seen, their little whippy tail does not look like a cedar tree, which is the largest tree. It is the largest tree in all the Middle East during the days of Job. Uh, these were the largest, oldest, strongest trees. And so when the Lord, not Job, when the Lord compares the tail of this thing, He doesn't say, wispy. <laughs> he says that on command, He can harden that thing and do battle. So we know that we're not talking about a hippo. Uh, some others have tried to say, well, this isn't a dinosaur, this is an elephant. Again, I've seen elephants. This isn't an elephant. Uh, elephant, does it, it doesn't fit the description at all. So uh, it is something unlike we find in the creation order today. That, doesn't, that shouldn't bother us. But Job 41, go to the next chapter, gives us another illustration. Now this is the Lord, all right? And some would say that, that, that God in chapter 40 and 41 is using mythological terms. Uh, the truth of the matter is, if you go back to... So, so Job is a book of dialogues, right? Job has a terrible, you know, first few chapters, terrible things are happening. He's trying to figure it out. His friends show up and try to answer it. They take turns answering it. Job takes turns answering them back, telling them how they're wrong. They tell Job how he's wrong. He's there, blah, 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 all the way to the end. And nobody can understand anything. Why does terrible things happen to good people? Well, it must be sin in their life. 
And Job has finally asked that last question where the Lord goes, <coughs> listen up. This is the Lord's answer back to Job. And it's quite strong. And it begins just a couple of chapters prior to this. But the Lord actually uses 12 animals as uh, illustrations to teach Job's point. These are two of them. All of the other ones we know. These are the two we don't know. It seems strange to me that the Lord would use really uh, uh, real animals that we know about and at the end, tail off into myths. It also says to me in chapter 40 where the Lord tells Job, Behold or look at, observe this thing. I made him just like I made you. So it, it, it sends, uh, seems to me that the Lord is not talking about figurative things. He's not talking about mythological things. He's talking about real things that Job himself has observed and could observe. Chapter 40 gives a more dis, a distilled, dis, detailed description. Verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Shoot down to verse 7. Can you feel his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? I mean, we're talking about, like, you can imagine the skin of something that spears can't even pierce. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. <laughs> you will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he? Who can stand before me? He, he is saying, I created things that make you cringe. And you think you can stand before me? I mean, look at this thing that I made and put in the water to swim around for my glory. You, you wilt at it. And you think you can stand and, against me? Right. So for those who would still try to marry evolution and the Bible... They would try to make these creatures into mythological characters. Some who would be using their faith to believe in evolution. It's, it's odd to me, so I want to start, and I don't want to be condescending at all, because these are, these are real issues, and they deserve real, real time and, and answers. Uh, but it's funny, everybody on the face of the earth has access to the exact same evidence. So depending on what you do with that evidence or what questions you are asking, you may go this way or you'll go this way. But I want you to understand the evidence doesn't change. The evidence is the same for those who trust God and those who do not. One does not have more information than the other. So I simply say this. If you believe in creation, it is faith that causes you to do that. If you believe in evolution, it is faith that causes you to do that. Not the evidence. Because the evidence doesn't make you do anything. It's evidence. It's just there. So what we have to learn to do is whether or not we're going to take Scripture and we're going to place it here or we're going to place it out here. What I mean by that is Scripture is either the lens or it's the goal. So if you would place, and I, I really, really hate to even say this because I don't do it in my everyday life, but it's the only way I know to get this across. It's not, we're not science or the Bible. I, you can, those two things belong together. It's not science. Science is the evidence. It's the studied observations, right? These things go together. One, one shows the other. Uh, so when I say scientist, I'm not talking about real science. I'm talking about 
those that use science as their, as their faith mechanism to believe certain things or the conclusions of what they believe. So you can either take the evidence and you're going to place it here and read it through the light of Scripture, which, by the way, will determine what your conclusions are. The Bible says this. I'm going to filter. The Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to trust it. So here's the evidence of who I am, where I came from, where I'm headed, and I'm going to interpret that by this. Or I'm going to take science, and I'm going to take all of somebody else's conclusions of science, by the way, not the evidence, because all of us aren't scientists. Some of us are. All of us aren't. So I'm going to take an article I read or something on TV or something that I heard or some book that I read or somebody smarter than me, their conclusions that they arrive to by faith and I'm going to believe those and I'm going to bring them closer and I'm going to interpret Scripture through those conclusions. Now, the, the way that you did, that's either, that's either a secular worldview or a biblical worldview, right? Those are really the only two options that you have. Is you're going to interpret, and that's not just true of, true of science, that's true of everything. I'm going to interpret Scripture through experience. I'm going to interp- interpret this through my feelings. I'm going to interpret, 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 right? You, we do that. Or we say, here's what it is. I'm going to filter that through what does God's Word say to me. It's very, very important. It is the most important distinction when it comes to the Word of God and any other alternative. Now, I say all of that to say that those who still try to marry those two things together and look at them simultaneously, they're going to try to make these as mythological characters because in order to believe in evolution, I'm going to need millions of years to get to where we are right now. And so... When I read dinosaurs in the Bible, I'm going to say elephant, hippo, shark, I don't know, water, you know, water ox. I'm going to use all sorts of other things because it can't be a dinosaur because if it's a dinosaur within the last 4,000 years, that really upends my secular worldview. So I need it to be something else. But Scripture is so clear in all that it teaches. It's really impossible, even with Scripture, to say that these aren't something that we're not experiencing today. Now, the earliest, the latest, I should say, that dinosaurs would have roamed the earth, according to a secular worldview, is about 75 million years ago. Well, we know humanity only goes back, even in the science world, it goes back a couple of hundred thousand years to become what we are right now. So we need that amount of time. We have to have that amount of time. And by the way, it keeps expanding every couple decades. It keeps expanding because of what we're learning. Well, what we believe right now can't possibly be true. What can make it, what we believe, what can we make it true? I I know, let's make it more time. That's not 4 million years or billion years. It's going to be 10 billion years. If we live long enough, it's going to keep pushing it out there because we know that that view cannot stand on its own. By the way, I've done a lot of study and, and seminars and different things this, this past summer. And it's interesting how many, careful, Darwinian evolutionists there are today. There are very few. They're dropping like flies. People don't believe Darwin's view of evolution much anymore. We've learned too much now. Which means, sadly, we've got to make more science books uh, because we keep learning stuff, learning stuff. Well, this thing that we learned that we said was absolute truth... <sighs> wasn't true. 
And so we keep learning. We keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So, I, again, I don't want to be condescending uh, because I know that there is a refutation on everything that I say. There, would be, uh, there could be a rebuttal. So, uh, these creatures were, no doubt, God said, I made them like I made you. And by the way, I'm going to try to hurry. I can't possibly get everything in today. I could talk about this for days. It's like my favorite, favorite thing to talk about. And so, uh, you know, I don't need help. I don't need your help telling me to stop. I'm, try, I'm going to try to self... <laughs> I'm going to try to self-govern if, if I can, all right? So uh, David, during his days as the king of Israel, said this in Psalm 104, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. So there, there were, we know for an absolute fact, that even in human antiquity, these things existed in some form or another. Now the Leviathan, if we look at the fossil record, we can see that the Leviathan, the description of that thing, uh, while we might not use the word Leviathan today, it seems like it would be uh, something along the lines of a Kronosaurus. Now again, you dinosaur buffs might like that sort of stuff. Most people, it's like, I don't even know that that thing exists uh, and that's okay too. But the behemoth, you think about like Jurassic Park or some of these long-tailed, big round bodies and the big long necks, you know, that reach to the top of trees. You know, these things are the most common forms of dinosaurs. Uh, Diplodocus is, uh, is their name. The behemoth seems to be like that and actually fits the narrative of how we think that it might have lived. Now, again, the fossil record tells us very, very little. Museums tell us a whole lot more than the evidence tells us. I'll just leave it there, okay? So we know that Job was written uh, after the flood. So for those who would say that the flood is what destroyed all the dinosaurs, absolutely not true. Dinosaurs were uh, well established after the flood. In fact, we have zero history of what the world was like prior to the flood. We have no idea what that was like. There's nothing that remains of that world. And so, uh, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But everything we know about this would have been post-flood. So the flood is not what destroyed the dinosaurs. The Ice Age was remote, wasn't everywhere. And so it did a lot to do some damage to that, uh, the migration and all of that sort of stuff. But it did also did not wipe out dinosaurs. Uh, and I don't think that a meteor did it. Uh, although that's the best, easiest answer if you have 75 million years to play with. But it seems really odd to me that a meteor and the dust or the nuclear explosion that would have resulted from that only destroyed dinosaurs. <laughs> it seems really weird to me that we still have life all around. We still have animal life. They need photosynthesis. They need the sun. But uh, plant life, rather. Plant life exists, but somewhere or another, these poor stupid dinosaurs couldn't know how to breathe in a dust storm. Uh, so, I, I mean, again, I don't mean condescending, but come on. I mean, Surely we can think for ourselves, right? Uh, only dinosaurs were destroyed by this. I guess it's possible if they were really long-necked and dust only came down so far. But <laughs> So Job was written in the same time that Abraham, just prior to Abraham, but certainly after the flood. Now, did you also know that in the world, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and move from what does the Bible say about dinosaurs to what are the implications of that? Uh, 
Noah preserving animals on, on the flood, I think, you know, for those of you who immediately go to flannel graphs or those little kids' books, you know, with the, the elephant and the giraffe, you know, up on the boat with the rainbow and all that, uh, that's, not, that's not a good story. That's, that's, it's probably the worst story that man could even make up. I mean, everything except that which is on this boat is just just carcasses. I mean, the, the world heavily populated, uh, it's, it's horrendous. I mean, you think about the boat, we think, oh, it's a great picture of these animals walking up to the ramp. Listen, there were billions of people banging on the door to get in. I mean, this is horrendous. Noah, his wife, their three boys, their wives, all of their wives' families didn't make it. I mean, can you imagine being on the boat and hearing your family on the other side of the wood and not being able to make it? And by the way, Noah wasn't the one saying, Whoop, come on, birdies. You know, he wasn't calling dogs to the boat. It says the Lord called the ones that he wanted. So Noah didn't have much say-so in it. So if you just read the Scripture, a whole lot of the things that we think about how that worked, quit using logic and just read the Word. It's pretty, pretty clear. So within animal life, at that point, there would have been, in order to produce all of the hundreds of thousands of variations that we have available to us today, all of those could, have, could go back to about 8,000 kinds. And if you look at what Scripture says, it is very, very clear that different animals weren't coming. Kinds of animals were coming. So you didn't have every species of horse or every species of cow or every species of dog you had dogs and within those dogs there were many variations of dogs in fact every variation that we have available today was on the ark and by the way they're still breeding and coming up with variations of dogs they're all there same way with humans there are variations of all within the same species so variations of species doesn't mean that species changes from species to another species. But everything that we have available today can be derived down to about 8,000. So there are 8,000 kinds of things that are on this boat, which makes a whole lot more sense. And by the way, I really doubt, since God is able to speak to Noah and say, hey, it's going to rain, rain, what's rain? Scripture says it never rained up until the days of Noah. 1,600 years, no rain. Well, how did the grass grow? Well, it says that it, came, it was watered from the dew, uh, from beneath the earth. So it has never rained. God spoke to Noah, told him exactly to the degree how he wanted the boat built, everything about it in detailed order. But God brings the meanest, the worst animals imaginable to be on the boat. Surely God doesn't bring a full-grown T-Rex to be on the boat. Surely he could bring a baby, or a small one, or a nice one, <laughs> and make it really sleepy for a year. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's lots of ways around this, right? So dragons, though, have always been a part of, not mythology, but a part of folklore. Now, with folklore comes a whole lot of legends, and, you know, we won't even get into all of those, but... Uh, there are lots of notable historians, Herodotus, Strabo, Dio, Josephus. They've all documented very, very well what these animals looked like. Enormous creatures called dragons. In fact, 
Alexander the Great talks about dragons. Marco Polo talks about his voyages on the sea. He tells stories in some of his journals you wouldn't even believe. I mean, sailors, things that they saw and experienced that were well documented. Uh, There are actually some ancient writings that actually talk about, well, what we call dinosaurs, but dragon parts for recipes. You know, specific dragon bones that you would put into recipes. Lots of old, uh, you know, I'm not talking about your grandma's recipes. I'm talking about your, you know, thousands of years old, you know, dragon blood and, and different things that they would call for for these, these delicious, delicious recipes. And we're glad that those have fallen out of fashion. But uh, to, to think that ancient man knew nothing of dinosaurs and that we didn't know anything about dinosaurs until the 1700s is absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's laughable, okay? So uh, that's more than well documented. Uh, there's actually even uh, sightings in caves where people have drawn pictures of humans and dinosaurs together. No way that they could know what these things were. They had not found the fossil record yet. They couldn't know what they were if they hadn't seen them. 800-year-old Cambodian temple has a huge drawing inside the temple of these sort of behemoths, these terrible lizards. So, why is there such a concerted effort to deny the cohabitation with man? Well, uh, evolutionists need it for their narrative. That's why. So, if they can make dinosaurs not exist with humans, it helps with their narrative. So let's begin. I'm going to talk about the fossil record for a few minutes. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into all of this, but I just want you to... A great question is, why is there not human fossils with... You know, why is there human fossils in the the fossil record with dinosaurs? It'd be great if we could find a huge... Like a a T-Rex in in this space, and beside a T-Rex, you know, Bob... (laughs) Uh, and, and he's laying there beside... So I, I don't know that they had tea together where they would be buried together, uh, but why can't we find them in the same strata or layer? Well, you can't if you believe that rock layer is millions of years. You w- probably won't find that because humans would be way up here, like six feet beneath. Uh, but with, with, with dinosaurs who were 75 million years ago, they're going to be way down here, right? Uh, so it would make sense... If you believe rock strata is, 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 is uh, uh, periods of time. Uh, but it makes great sense if these rock layers were laid down by weight and density as the flood receded and washed. And I think that, I think that, I think that there's good evidence that that is what happened. But let's talk about the fossil record for some. A lot of people, really, if you're getting your information from the History Channel... Or, or people who need you to buy into their faith system, they're not going to tell you all of the facts. 95% of every fossil that has ever been found are, are uh, invertebrates. And what I mean by that is things like corals, uh, marine organisms, shellfish, those sorts of things. And so 5% of the fossil record, within that 5%, of that is algae, plants, tree fossils, including vegetation that we still have available today uh, and and know what it is. That makes up trillions of tons 
of the, of the coal, all right? Those are, those are the inverte, uh, uh, vertebrates. So when it comes to vertebrates, like fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, us, make up very, very little of the fossil record. In fact, it's 5% of 5%. That's 0.25% of the fossil record that's even remotely similar to us. So comparatively speaking, very, very few amphibian, reptile, bird, mammal fossils. And yet so much is made of these particular kind. For example, you go to the, the number of uh, dinosaur fossils that have ever been found in the last 300 years. In, in private museums, in, in private uh, holdings, and also in public museums, we have found 2,100 dinosaur fossils. That's it. 2,100. So of this, 25, uh, 0.25% of the fossil record, 1% of that, 1% of that quarter percent, that's 0.0025%, when that fossil was found, it was connected to another bone. 0.0025. That means that the dinosaurs that you see in museums all over the world, how their teeth was formed, what their skin looked like, what sounds they made, pff, we have no idea. We have no idea. Did you know the Stegosaurus is one of the most recognizable dinosaurs? We have found one skull ever. Dipoclid... <laughs> This boy, that's really that makes you bold well with confidence, doesn't it? Uh, Diplocitus has, we have never found a skull. That one in Jurassic Park that looks up and you go, oh, they must have been amazing. We have no, we've never found a skull. 2,100 fossils, 0.0025, were at least two bones at a time. And we're going to say we have a clue? We have no clue. We have no clue of what the world was like and what we're. Here's some things we know about fossils. We know that if they're decomposing, they won't fossilize. So these things would have been buried alive, deep, fast, no oxygen, cut off from oxygen. So, like, buried beneath mud immediately. Some of the things that we have found uh, may still have vegetation in its mouth where it died on the spot. Now listen, I don't mean this to be demeaning to all of my dinosaur friends, but humans are smarter than dinosaurs. They had really, really small brain capacities. So I think we're smarter. And by the way, you look at a dinosaur, slow, big, it can't hide very many places. But if that flood's coming at me hard, I'm probably grabbing two trees, lashing them together, and I'm going to float until the vultures take care of me. Uh, I, I don't mean that ugly. I just mean, you want to know why there's not human fossils? Is because... Humans wouldn't have qualified. We're, we're not going to get covered up like that. They may exist. It's possible that that does exist, but it would be very remote that we would ever be able to find that, and it may be so deep by now that we wouldn't be able to find it. Sometimes these things come up to the top. If they do and we're not there to find it, things, things take care of fossils if they're not found quickly. So I don't want to get into all of that, but sedimentary rock, the type of rock that fossils are most commonly found in, covers about 75% of the earth's surface uh, and, uh, and much of the ocean floor, tens of thousands of feet thick in certain places. 
So even if there are dinosaurs and human remains together, uh, the chances of it being exposed and, and discovered and recognized and reported together is very improbable. Uh, improbable. Because you know, humans, you say, well, what about all the people that were dead before? What well, people that are buried aren't going to fossilize. Uh, they're, they're decomposing already, and, and it's just not going to work that way. So uh, that's, that's a pretty, pretty simple answer, and I recognize that it's a simple answer. I don't have a whole lot of time. But evolution says the way fossils are made, uh, you know, quick and deep, like a, like a flood would, would do. Humans would have fought against it. They would have went to higher ground. They would have built boats. And by the time their carcasses, when the earth is settling back down and their bodies are above and the animals begin to dissipate out, or all of the marine animals, they're still all in the water, right? I mean, you know, what happens if a dead carcass is floating in the water and fish want to eat? Uh, that's, that's what happens to them. So uh, I don't mean to be ugly. I just mean to be reasonable. Uh, that's, that's why you won't find it. So, uh, and surprisingly enough, you know, back in 2004, that great tsunami that hit Southeast Asia, remember that? Uh, did you know that we still have not found 43,000 of those folks? So you say, well, where are they all at? Uh, all the pre-flood people, where are they at? I don't, we don't even know where these people were, and this was 13 years ago. And, and probably the best illustration is in Genesis chapter 6. Verse 7, I think it's God's apologetic. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will what? When you find it, somebody say it. I will blot out man. So if you want to know where the evidence is of mankind before the flood, the Lord told us, I don't want you to know about that. It was terrible. I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. And God's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises and he desires holiness and obedience from his creation. So I want to shift gears. I don't have a whole lot of time, but I do want to shift gears uh, and, and kind of head into another realm. And that is, uh, what does the Bible say about aliens? And, and so I didn't save a whole lot of time for it because the Bible doesn't say anything about aliens. It says a lot about dragons and fire-breathing things, but nothing about aliens. But listen, here's the good news. I think there are great, uh, uh, this is a great question, and implications are huge. So I just want to take you to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26 and 27. Here's why the Bible doesn't speak about aliens. There's a very specific reason why the Bible doesn't speak about intelligent life somewhere else. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he, Jesus, this he did what? What? Once. Keep going. For all, once for all, when he offered up himself. There's two things here that Hebrews tells us. Number one, that Jesus did this once. Jesus, the only begotten, unique, no one like him. That's what the word begotten means in, in Greek. Nothing compares to Jesus. The only one, God's Son, 
is going to die how many times? One time. One time. That means that Jesus will experience one death. That death will result in resurrection, which then he passes on to anyone who trusts in him to believe and obey. The second thing that this says is, he died once and only once for everyone. That means there is only one chance of salvation. Salvation doesn't find itself in any other way. So Jesus becomes our kinsman redeemer. God is not the man upstairs. He's not man at all. He is uncomparable to mankind. But God, the Son, became flesh, John chapter 1 says, and dwelt among us. It means He put on flesh and lived like flesh, to suffer like flesh, to live like us so that He could redeem us in our flesh. He who understands every temptation possible that you can go through, Jesus experienced. Not one thing can you go through that Jesus did not go through yet without sin. In the flesh, so that He could die for the flesh of humanity. That we do not have to live separated from Him. God couldn't die for us unless God understood us. And so Jesus came near to us to understand us in our infirmities and make a choice to go to the cross to die for our sin. This is incredibly important because if you're going to believe that there's intelligent life out there somewhere, then you're going to need a Redeemer for them. Well, unless they're perfect, which by the way, a lot of people believe in intelligent life is out there and it's superior to us. We need them to be superior because if they are superior to us, then what it does is it actually elevates us. It way elevates them, but it devalues God altogether. Because if they're perfect, God doesn't exist. Perfect, that's what we were going for all along. There is life on another planet because God can't exist. But if they're not perfect, then they need a Redeemer. If they don't need a Redeemer, then God, the God that He describes in Scripture, isn't true to His character and nature. They either have to have a Redeemer or they're sinless. Neither is possible with the God of the Bible because Jesus isn't going to become an alien to die for aliens. Jesus didn't become an angel to redeem fallen angels because His death was once and for all. There are not other lives there are not other worlds that are separated for us to the glory of God. There's not a world that existed before us and there will not be a world that exists after us. God doesn't play games with this thing because we are sinful beings and we need a Redeemer and Jesus Christ is all we get. Him or nothing. And they'll never find intelligent life. They might find a plant fossil. You won't find intelligent life because they'll need a Redeemer. Now, watch this. It's, it's, it all works the same. With, with evolution, evolution needs 4 billion years. We need 75 million years between dinosaurs and humans. These are, these are necessary things. And, and here's another thing that happens. You cannot believe in evolution and not believe in death. Evolution requires death. Whatever it is, if it's becoming something else, it's got to die first, which is really weird because it hadn't become that yet, but yes, it's going to produce it. Weirdest thing ever. 
Evolution requires death. Whether it's four billion years or not. Evolution requires death. But Scripture is very clear that God looked at Adam and Eve, real beings by the way, and said, if you rebel against me, you will die. There had never been death to that moment. No death. In fact, how do I know that? Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty that the death that I deserved is in Him. The death as a result of my sin belongs to Jesus. You know why you can't marry evolution and creation together? Because it, it, it works fine. You can say, well, how do we know? Well, that's true. How do we know? Until you get to the cross and now you've got Jesus dying for some other reason other than the curse of sin. Death cannot have existed prior to the curse. That's the reason Jesus went to the cross. And if you want to believe in life on other planets and all that stuff, it, it's fine. Believe in that. It's fun. It's sci-fi. It's mythical. Until you get to the cross. And that's Satan's way of, of being so diminutive to the cross. We will buy anything. And by the time we get to the cross, we just pass it off. I've already believed in all this other stuff. And eh, what difference does it really make? makes all the difference in the world. And what it tells me is that we, Jesus Christ came as the unique Son of God because we are unique. This moment, this time, this place, this purpose, God has given us all of His attention. His mind roams throughout all of creation and He knows how many hairs are on your head. And He loves you. And He gave Himself for you so that you might walk with Him. There are not many options and, and don't be so overwhelmed by everything we learn because it all comes down to not what are you going to do about creation or what are you going to do about life on other planets. It all comes down to what are you going to do about the cross of Jesus Christ. Evolution shouldn't be our obstacle. Life on other planets shouldn't be our obstacle. The cross of Jesus Christ, that's the stumbling block that you've got to trip over. You have to answer that question. What am I going to do with Jesus Christ? the only begotten Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us to remove the sin curse from us. That's what it all boils down to. So we have to ask ourselves, is so all of that aside, God of the past, God of the future? But what I want to ask you about is the God of the right now, this present. His kingdom, His kingdom is spreading. When He said to us in Acts chapter 1, he said, you will be my witnesses. He didn't say the fossil record or life on other planet will be his witnesses. You will be my witnesses. God made a very specific choice to choose those who have been redeemed and transformed by the power of the cross to be his apologetic. His answer for the world is his life in you. And all that has to do with what am I going to do with Jesus today? Am I going to live in His kingdom? Or am I going to try to be confused and say things don't really matter? Am I going to live in my depression where life is meaningless? Am I going to live in my anxiety where everything's a big deal? Am I going to create drama everywhere I go? Am I going to whatever it is, right? We love to live in that because we're not focused on the cross. I want to take you to another verse of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. You should live in a way that proves that you belong to God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. You should live in a way that proves that you belong to God. 
And that, that means putting God first in every area of your life that you want His blessing in. So I've come up with an acrostic here. And first, F-I-R-S-T. In your finances, if you want God to bless your finances, you need to put Him first in your finances. There's no, I mean, there's no other mechanism. In your interests, your hobbies, your recreation, you need to put God first and you need to ask, in everything that I want to do, is God the chief reason that I'm wanting to do it? In your relationships, your relationships are so important, you need to bring God into your parenting, you need to bring God into your marriage, you need to bring God into your people that you work with, people you go to school with, all of your neighbors. You need to make sure that every moment of your day is consumed with expanding God's glory on the earth. Your schedule. Not making time for God, but in everything you do, making sure that God is present. Your schedule, your calendar, the things that are important to you. Put God first in those areas. It's very important for us to make sure that God is always first. And, and probably the hardest for me is the T, and that's in our troubles. I, I go through a lot of things, and I can tell you there's a lot of times in my life where I think to myself, I'm, on, I'm just honest with you, I just think to myself, I hadn't even prayed about that. You start feeling burdened. You start feeling worried. You start feeling the pressure. You start feeling the anxiety. You start feeling the burnout. You start feeling the tension. It doesn't even belong to me. That belongs to the Lord. But boy, we're really good at hanging on to all of these things because we know better. But we need to prove that we belong to God by how we order our life out. That's what God chose to save the world, not the fossil record. And not the sci-fi channel. God chose transformed lives. And that testimony the world can't come against. So I encourage you. Live holy. Live obedient. Choosing to seek God first in His kingdom. And then all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth of your word. And, um, and I just pray that as the world tries to remove the importance of the cross and turn Jesus into some kind of good moral teacher that was a martyr for his understanding or some crazed lunatic who might not have even existed. Lord, I pray those who have been touched by the Lord, those who have been changed by him, who have experienced him at a deep level and believe your truth, that our lives would be the testimony when the apologetic of everything else fails. Lord, the evidence of the world can go either direction. But the evidence of a transformed life only points to the Father. So I just pray this morning that you would burden us with holiness. Help us to wrestle, Lord. Understanding the importance of the cross. And we can always come up with excuses to believe whatever it is that we want to believe. But I pray that we would filter that through the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.